Good morning. Morning. And let's begin with prayer. Gracious Father, we are so thankful for your love, for your truth, for your goodness. We thank you for the privilege of being able to join and meet together and study about you. We ask that your spirit will join us and lighten our minds, draw our hearts together in love, and make us effective for taking this end-time message to the world so that people can be prepared to meet you, because we can see you're coming soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We are doing Lesson 7 in the quarterly, The Promise, God's Everlasting Covenant, and this is the covenant at Sinai. Sunday's lesson. In the first two paragraphs, as a people, Israel had been immersed in Egyptian paganism for many long, hard centuries, an experience that no doubt dimmed their knowledge of God, his will, and his goodness. How could the Lord win them back to himself? That's a great question. How could the Lord win them back to himself? And you have to think, how does God win people? If you think about this group of people, what were the obstacles God had to to deal with in winning them back to himself. Does their being slaves, being uneducated, abused, oppressed, mistreated, uh, having human life devalued, being immersed in pagan culture and practices, does any of that have any impact on their minds, their understanding, their comprehension, their ability to process truth, their ability to trust others, their ability to trust God, their ability to believe in God, their ability to believe that God is good? Um, Does any of that history have any impact on their ability to actually trust God and follow him? Yeah, notice what God is dealing with. And and therefore, does God have to take into account their minds, their mindset, where they are in dealing with them? Does he have to speak a language that they understand? So where does God start with this group of people who's been in slavery for hundreds of years? What would be the most single significant point the, the, the first step that the slaves must understand and know for them to be willing to follow God. The most single important point. Any other point other than this one, they're not going to follow. For instance, would the most single point for these people at this point in their journey be that they need to know God is love, he's gentle, he's kind, and he's meek? Yeah. Would they be willing to follow him? God's kindness leads us to repentance. That's what the Bible says. His kindness leads us to... So if gentle Jesus, meek and mild, is presented to this group of people, is it likely they'd be willing to follow him? Why or why not? Why not? It would be true, but why wouldn't they follow? Yes? They want to see power. That the God of heaven is stronger and faster and better than the Egyptian gods. Because otherwise, they're just going to go back to the Egyptian gods. They need to see a powerful God before they see a loving God. So, well said. The most important single point that they had to see first was there was no power in the universe more powerful than their God. He is the most powerful. That's what they needed. And you remember the seven levels of moral decision-making? You see... Uh, once they start following God, then, and they listen, he can then grow them up. He can mature them. But if they don't follow, he can't help them mature and grow. So he starts, when I was in my residency, they used the metaphor of, uh, of golf. Uh, and there's a rule in golf for those who don't play golf. And, and the rule in golf is you play the ball where it lies. 
If you're in the sand, you don't get the privilege of moving it out to over here. If you're in the rough, you don't get the privilege of making it easier on yourself. You've got to play it where it lies. And people are like that. When they come to your office, you don't get to move them to another place to start treating them. You've got to treat them where they are. God had to start with his people where they were. And we just described how they were really inculcated into practices, beliefs, and, and experiences that seriously uh, damaged their minds and capacities to comprehend higher truth. And so the seven levels of moral decision-making, the most basic primitive level, level one, reward and punishment. Something is right if you're rewarded for it. It's wrong if you get punished for it. This is the most basic level, and this is the level of the slave. The Nazi soldier who put people in the gas chambers when they asked, why did you do it? Well, I would have been court-martialed and punished. It was right not to get punished. Very primitive thinking. This was ancient Israel at the time of the Egyptian bondage. They did what they did to avoid the whip and to perhaps get some reward. Do we see in our societies today movements to drive individuals back toward level one thinking. Fear of deplatforming, fear of censoring, fear of riots, of mobs, of government sanction, of economic ruin, of travel restrictions. Don't ask questions, don't think, shut up and do it. Whatever it is, level one, avoid the punishment. Avoid the punishment, avoid the punishment. Do it, do it, do it. Don't think, don't ask questions. Stage one, as was said, the ruler establishes right to rule by displays of power. And thus God says in Deuteronomy 21, excuse me, 29, 6, about all these plagues that he did in Egypt, this is what God says, I did this so that you might know I am the Lord God. I had to establish I'm the most powerful. But understand level one decision making. Moving towards rewards. Moving away from pain, suffering, and punishment, level one decision-making. It's right to move away from pain uh, and move towards rewards. does not require a brain. Animals, fish, bacteria grow towards rewarding environments and move away from destructive and painful ones. This is not a level of functioning that is worthy of beings created in the image of God. But level two, God takes them from level one. I'm powerful. Follow me. Okay. He's powerful. Let's follow him out of Egypt. And they do. And where does he take them next? To where we are today after, well, through, through the Red Sea. But the next major stopping point was where we are today. Sinai. Sinai. And at Sinai, he introduces them to level two. And they respond with a level two response. And level two is marketplace exchange. It's the quid pro quo. You do something for me in exchange of agreed, uh, uh, something of agreed value in return, something we agree upon. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. We have, we've got a deal. Right and wrong is, is determined by the, uh, the accords of the deal. This is the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth mentality. Equal but not beyond equal payback is required. It's moral necessity. If somebody's done you wrong, you must pay them back in kind. That's a requirement of righteousness to do so. To not do so is, 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 is wicked. 
And so you have the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And this, again, then is where we are today in the Sinai account. God gave them his instructions, and the people said, all the Lord has said we will do. We obey the rules. He gives us blessing. We pay our tithe. We get richer. We go to church on the right day. We get eternal life. It's a deal. We got to deal with God. Level two, moral decision-making. It also, this level of, of understanding in our society today manifests itself across the landscape of both society and the church. You see this in the church with the health wellness gospel. You say this prayer every day for 30 days and God will expand your boundaries and, and, give, and give you uh, more wealth. Uh, you, you, you do this or do that. You make a deal with God. You find the Bible promise, a little Bible promise book. You find the right promise. You claim the promise. Drop that, that, uh, that promise like a quarter in the heavenly vending machine. And God is now obliged by the promise you've claimed to provide you the rewards you've, you've so, so righteously earned by your righteous claiming of the promise. Understand level two development requires the most minimal amount of awareness. Dogs, dolphins can do all types of tricks in order to get a treat. And other animals, monkeys, Level three, social conformity. Right and wrong is determined by a consensus of the peer group. This is the child that says, Mom, everyone else is doing it. Must be right if the whole group thinks it's right. I want to do it too. Israel is slaves, level one. Israel at Sinai, hey, Lord, we've got a deal. We'll do our part. You keep blessing us. Level two. And then Israel moves to level three. All the other nations have kings. We want kings too. It's the right thing to do because that's the way all the other nations run. This is the herd mentality. And people who think this way follow the herd or the crowd, even if it's right over the cliff. See what's happening in society today. See the deals people are willing to make to keep their job, to be able to travel, to keep their platform, to keep their church from being closed by the, by the state. And besides, most people agree. Look at the media. Most of the media tells us it's all good. Level four, law and order. At level four, right and wrong is determined by a codified system of rules, impartial judges, and imposed or prescribed penalties. And uh, judgment at this and punishment is deferred to the proper elected authorities. This is the, this is the, and right and wrong is the, the people in authority are rarely questioned. Well, he must be right. He's the president. He's the pope, he's the pastor, he's the priest. Or elementary school children, he's the referee, he's the umpire, he's the teacher, he's the principal. And these are the tattletales. When you operate it, you have elementary school filled with tattletales. Johnny was just passing notes, teacher, and you said no notes. And churches are filled with tattletales. Not wearing a mask. In their own car. In a parking lot at a church. With a PA speaker. Let's find them. Tattletales. This is the Jewish people, Israel, at the time of Christ. We have a law, Jesus. We have a law. And you keep breaking our law. 
Level five, love for other people, right and wrong, is by doing what's actually in the best interest of others, regardless of the law. Present the truth and love, leave people free. Let them make up their own decision. Every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. Jesus functioned at this level, and he constantly broke their laws. He socialized with tax collectors. He spoke to women, women who weren't even part of the Jewish nation. He turned over the money tables at the temple. He taught them that the person who was right with God was a Samaritan, while the priest and the Levi were not right with God. But the Samaritan never kept Sabbath. He never bought a sacrifice to temple. He never paid tithe. But he's right with God. (laughs) You're breaking the law, Jesus. We, We can't have that. Love for other people. Six, principle-based living. Right and wrong is determined by understanding God's design laws, how he built reality to work, and living in harmony with them. Mature people recognize that the state can pass laws to make marijuana legal. They can never pass laws to make it healthy. There's a difference between man's laws and God's laws. And only the mature are really going to be not duped or deceived by the imperialism that is coming upon the world. And I'm telling you, if you've got your eyes open, imperialism's coming. It's already almost completely upon us. And then seven, understanding friend of God, not only loves God and others, not only understands God's designs, but intelligently participates in God's purposes, becomes friends of God. John 15, 15, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends, because servants don't understand their master's business. We have understanding of what God's trying to achieve and intelligently cooperate with him. So if you look at the history of Israel, Israel's history is a history of how reality works, how God actually works. Truth presented in love, leaving people free. Why? God cannot win hearts and minds without the active free will participation of the individual. Understand, God cannot create what God wants. God cannot use miraculous power to cause what he wants without your participation. There is miraculous power in your regeneration healing. But he can't do it without your participation. Why? Because maturity cannot be instantly given as a miraculous act of God. Adam and Eve were created sinless in Eden. But they were not mature. They were sinless. They had no propensities to evil. That only love in their hearts, only righteousness, but they were not mature to the point that they could process and choose loyalty, settled into the truth about God's kingdom, his design laws, beyond all temptation. They were immature. They were childlike. And then they became corrupted with fear and selfishness. God cannot, by use of divine power, get trust. Loyalty, love, friendship. That's why not by might nor by power, by the way the Spirit works, says the Lord. Spirit is the Spirit of truth and love. Truth presented in love, leaving you free. So when you participate with God, actively choosing to accept his truths, surrender and open your heart to him, there is a divine power at work, for sure. Understand, there's a divine power at work in your healing and transformation, and you're not being healed short of God's Creative divine power, but it's not a creative divine power that overrides your individuality and erases you.
So the lesson asks us to read Exodus 19.4, and it says, You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt and how I lifted you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. The imagery of lifting on eagles' wings, what is it supposed to teach? And the uh, lesson reads in the fourth paragraph, These illustrations indicate that our God is very much aware of our helplessness. In both the figures of the eagle and the, pre- and the parent carrying his child, we sense God's concern for our well-being, tender, supportive, protective, encouraging. He desires to bring us to full maturity. What are the lessons? Can an eagle fly when it is hatched? An eaglet, an eaglet fly. Can an infant walk when it is born? Why? Is there a deficiency in the creation? God didn't create them with an ability to walk and fly at, at birth? Shouldn't he, have, shouldn't he have designed it better? Or is there a lesson here? Does an eaglet and infant have to be fed by the parent and ingest the nurturing food so their body can grow and gain the strength to fly or walk? Is that a requirement? Do newborn, newborns in Christ have to be fed the bread of life, the truth of God, ingest that food into their hearts and minds, and those truths and principles become part of their uh, inner working so that they mature and grow to the point that they can stand and walk the Christian walk? Do eaglets and infants need the protection of their parents and other, other godly people um, during their development to be to be protected from being ravaged by predators. Do they need that? Do babes in Christ need the protection of God and and other mature Christians in order not to be ravaged by the wolves in sheep's clothing? The liars in our midst. Do eaglets and infants need parents to teach them how to fly or walk and to help them grow? Do they? Do babes in Christ need mature Christians to help mentor them and teach them God's methods and principles for living, how how to reason, how to discern, how to problem solve, how to handle powerful emotions, how to stand on their own two feet? Do, do, Do babes who love Christ and have surrendered to Christ need mentoring, need other mature Christians to help them develop these skills? Do eaglets and infants need to actually develop the abilities within themselves before they can fly and walk on their own? Do they actually have to develop those abilities? Do Christians, do the babes in Christ, need to actually grow up to mature before they can actually walk the Christian walk? Do you understand how much of that is not taught in Christianity? What's taught in Christianity is you need to accept Jesus, you need to say the sinner's prayer, you need to get his legal application of his blood in a book in heaven, and then you're saved. Done. Done. Oh, you're going to struggle with sin the rest of your life because you're a sinner. Don't expect to actually overcome. Don't expect victory. Doesn't matter anyway because you're saved now. It's all covered under the blood. All sins, past, present, and future, put on Christ, punish there. You're good. Do you understand the fraud that's perpetrated and why? Within Christian homes, there's no difference in abuse rates of their own spouses, their own children, addictions, and, 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 and pornography, and all this stuff. Because that so-called gospel is not good news. It's a big fraud. It keeps people trapped. 
So what does maturity actually grow up look like according to Scripture? Hebrews 5, 11 through 6, verse 2. This is in the NIV. We have much to say about it, but it's hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though, by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary, remember elementary school? That's not the complex stuff. That's the ABCs. That's the basic stuff. The, the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Now, now get this. Anyone who lives on milk... Still being an infant is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. Righteousness by faith. We have the righteousness by faith message. What's the righteousness by faith message? Well, you get to be declared. If you accept Jesus in his payment at your behalf, you get declared to be righteous even though you're not. All your sins are paid for. That's the elementary teachings. That's the ABCs. If you believe that and teach that, you are not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness, even though you're using righteousness language. So he goes on to say, the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. This is discernment. Having been able to learn how to think and reason and weigh the evidences, understand God's design laws, understand the, the lies of the enemy, can differentiate between what's actually healthy and restorative and what's destructive and deceitful and false. That's the mature. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. Now, here, here, he'll give you an insight of some of these elementary stuff. Not laying, again, the foundation of foundation, elementary ABCs. If you don't know your ABCs, you can't read. It's foundational. Foundation of repentance of acts that lead to death. Focusing on the do's and the don'ts. Repentance of the deeds, the acts, the accounting. That's your focus, if that's your doctrine, if that's your teaching. You're not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. I can't tell you how much of Christianity is still stuck as infants in Christ. So what's maturity? Well, it's, excuse me, immaturity, those seven levels we just went through, immaturity are the level four and below. And what is level four and below? If you start with level one, this is what their focus is. If you're level one, your focus is on reward and punishment, getting rewards and avoiding punishment. How much of Christianity is about the focus, or avoiding hell? Avoiding hell or, or getting your reward? Level one. Level two, it's about getting a good deal. Making sure we got the best deal. Level three, being accepted by the crowd. Level four, getting one's legal debt paid and avoiding legal trouble. All of these are not acquainted with the teaching of righteousness. But level five and above are the righteous. And level five is love for God and love for others. Self-sacrificial, other-centered, altruistic living. To glorify God and to actually help other people in eternal channels. Level, level six, living in harmony with God's design laws. Having his law written on the heart and mind. And level seven, being able to intelligently cooperate in fulfilling God's purposes in your life and your sphere of influence. These are the righteous. Question? Anybody? So, I just want to say, 
don't don't forget to, don't don't forget to unpack that those are functioning at one level are only able to come, uh, thank you one level above. I I think that's one of the more important facets of, of this these seven levels is the the difficulties involved. So when you think about development, we're talking about infants growing up into maturity. Can an, can an infant go from infancy to toddling directly, or do they have to actually crawl first? And after they crawl, then they have to learn to stand. And they're standing, holding on to something very unsteady. And, and they go from standing and holding to toddling, and then they can go to walking, and then they can go to running. But can they go from infancy to running? Or even infancy to standing. They can't. You, there are actually developmental stages. You must achieve one before you can step on to the next. It's also true in understanding God's reality. If you haven't mastered one level, you aren't able to go beyond the very next level. That's the only one you can get to. And so people who, um, whatever level people are at, they can only really begin to comprehend and process the very next level. They can't truly grasp levels, multiple levels above where they are. And I'm going to go through the atonement models very quickly. Why did Jesus have to die? Because I'm constantly still, no matter how much I put out there, getting these allegations that I teach moral influence theory. We don't teach moral influence. Anybody says that, immediately shoot it down. We don't teach moral influence theory. But we constantly get it. Why? Well, I'm going to show you moral influence theory is level five. And who are the people making allegations against us? They're the penal legal adherents, which are level four. And so even though we don't teach level five, they can't see past level five. And so their allegations that I teach that are diagnostic that they're at level four in their understanding of reality. So what are the quickly the, four, the, 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 the various models for the seven levels? Reward and punishment. This is why Jesus had to die. Why did Jesus have to die? If you're level one, well, because God said don't do something, but they did it, and God got offended and angry and vengeful, and somebody had to die in order to satisfy his wrath, and Jesus died to satisfy the wrath of God. This is the satisfaction theory of atonement, level one. Level two is the marketplace exchange. Well, because Satan now has overthrown Adam, and he has the rights to planet Earth, and he claims the lives of the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve, and God struck a bargain with the devil to exchange the life of Christ for the life of humans. Or Aslan gives his life to the white witch to free the son of Adam. This is the ransom theory of atonement. Level three, social conformity, uh, so that all will agree that God's, we have consensus of the group, that God's government is fair in dealing with sin. This is the governmental theory of atonement. Level four, law and order. To pay the legal debt or the legal penalty that the law demanded and the heavenly judge imposed. The law must be kept. Man broke the law. Someone had to pay the penalty. Jesus paid the penalty. The integrity of the law is maintained. This is penal substitution, theology or theory. Level five, love for others. Because God loved us too much to let us go, and his death was the means to reach us with his love and restore us back to trust in him. This is the moral influence theory. He acted righteously and lovingly to influence us and win our hearts back. That's the moral influence theory. Uh, level six, principle-based living. 
This was the only means. Christ's death, Christ's incarnation, death, and resurrection was the only means to fix what sin had done to God's creation. When mankind sinned, they deviated from God's design for life, and their condition was terminal. Christ came to fix what sin did to this creation. Thus, he who knew no sin became sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God, restoring. And some say he picked up humankind broken and damaged by Adam and carried it to perfection and sinlessness. This is known as Christus Victor, or the recapitulation theory of atonement. And then level seven understanding. Christ died to reveal truth and win us to trust, John 8.32, to destroy death and bring immortality to light, 2 Timothy 1.10, to destroy sin and Satan, who holds the power of death, Hebrews 2.14, to restore humanity back to God's original ideal, uh, 1 John 3.8, and to secure the universe unfallen in its innocence, all things in heaven and earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross, Colossians 1.20. This is the healing reality in our understanding, what he's really achieving. And if you go back through the metaphors in Scripture, satisfaction metaphor, uh, ransom metaphor, through level 7 understanding, they all make perfect sense. So let's go through, through them very quickly. Satisfaction. What is the level 7 understanding of satisfaction? Well, after Adam sinned, Creation is out of harmony with God and is in a terminal condition. The Bible uses language such as dead in trespass and sin. God is like a parent now who has a child who's dying of leukemia. Now, parents in the room, if you have a child dying of leukemia, what is the only thing that truly and perfectly satisfies you? A remedy that saves your child puts the leukemia into remission. Thus, that's the satisfaction God is looking for. And it says in Isaiah 53, 11, he will, quote, this is a quote, he will see the result of the suffering of his soul and be satisfied. The penal view says he will satisfy because his wrath is poured out and caused the suffering and thus he vented himself satisfied. No. What is the result of Christ's suffering? Saving humanity. Saving humanity, healing us from sin. That's what satisfies. The suffering is not what satisfied. The result of the suffering is what satisfies. That's Isaiah 53, 11. So God was satisfied in the result. There's no venting of spleens going on here. All right, ransom theory. Ransom is the price required to free someone from bondage. Well, in reality, what holds us in bondage? Two things, lies about God and our own carnal nature. What is it that's required to free us? You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free, and we receive no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We get a new nature, a new heart, and a right spirit. We get the mind of Christ. So we need both. So the ransom price is the price reality requires for us to be freed from lies and one to trust, and for us to have a new character or heart or heart motives, the law written on the heart and mind. This is metaphorically taught in the bread and the wine or the flesh, and the blood, that's the metaphor. Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. He's not talking cannibalism. The, the flesh, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. When you eat a piece of the lamb in the Levitical service or you eat a piece of bread, my body broken for you, take it into your body, those substances become broken down into nutrient molecules that become building blocks of your actual physical body. When you take the word that was made flesh, you're taking in the truths, 
that Jesus is revealed. And as those truths are ingested and become part of you, they become part of the building blocks of your belief systems, your perspectives, your, your philosophies, your worldview, transforming you from a world of darkness into a world of light. You're one to trust. And when you open the heart, then you, says Romans 5, 5, he pours his love into our hearts. This is the blood. The life of Christ, the life of the animals in the blood. So we partake and we receive a new life, a new heart, a new motive. That is the ransom price. And who, who is it paid to? It's paid to us. We're the ones who need the truth and we're the ones who need a new, a new heart and mind. It's not paid to God. It's not paid to the devil. These are, these are gross distortions. Governmental theory. God rules on design law. This is the mature understanding. He built reality. He sustains reality, truth, love, liberty, and so forth. He can only heal minds, as we've described, by exercising himself in harmony with those designs. Truth, present in love, leaving people free, winning us to trust. Thus, God's government and his design laws are sustained as the only way health in the universe operates. We all are convinced and settled into the truth. Penal substitution. This is the first metaphor not found in Scripture. The first three are in Scripture because they actually metaphorically teach some reality. Penal substitution is a complete fabrication of Satan. It is not in Scripture. It is a lie. It's based on accepting Satan's view of God's law. It was actually made up by Martin Luther for the purpose of uh, of disempowering the Catholic Church's doctrine of purgatory. In the purgatory doctrine, when people died and they had sins unresolved, they would go to a place of suffering to have the sins purged so they could go on to heaven. And if you had a loved one that died, the church leaders would tell you that your loved one's there suffering. It might be 100 or 500 years or whatever, but you can shorten their suffering and give the church gold. And if you give the church gold or go to go on a crusade, then all your loved ones in purgatory will be launched immediately into heaven because sins that were unreconciled or un, unta- uh, un, unresolved by the church uh, have to be purged. And so Martin Luther taught that all sins of all people of all time, past, present, and future, are put on Jesus and punished by God on Jesus. And if you accept that payment in your behalf, there are no unpunished sins left to be purged when you die. This was the primary purpose of creating this idea of penal substitution to do away with the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. But it's still operating on the false premise that God's law works like human law. Martin Luther was leading people out of a false system, but he never got out of the false system completely himself. He was moving in the right direction, but he never freed freed, uh, himself nor his adherents to all of the distortions of imperialism. The Reformation was to continue. And the ultimate completion was the three angels' message where we come back to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, which is worshiping the creator whose laws are design laws. So penal substitution. And people say, well, yeah, yeah, but, but, but God added the Ten Commandments. Yes, he did. We'll talk much more about that next week. But what were the purpose of the Ten Commandments? Two purposes, perhaps three. Diagnostic, look in the mirror, see what's wrong. Hedge of protection. For the immature. Same reason parents will have a rule for their kid not to play in the street or to brush their teeth to protect them from the consequences of breaking design laws. You don't brush your teeth, law of thermodynamics, your teeth decay. Play in the street, get hit by a car, law of physics, you get killed. And parents will protect the infants or the children. God gave this to protect the the, the slaves that were so childlike and immature. So they would grow up. And when we grow up, then we realize what Paul said to Timothy. The law was not given for the righteous, it was given for the wicked. And you go through the long list of what he describes there. The slave trader, the abuser, and so forth. Why was it given? 
The righteous don't need that because the law's in their heart. We'll talk more about that next week. But I'm telling you, penal substitution theology is Satan's wine. It's based on imperial law. It's based on the lie that God's law works like human law. And those who buy into it are constantly obstructed from actually experiencing the full renewal of heart that God has for them. They will continue to struggle. And then they will continue to accuse me of teaching moral influence theory, which is the next one. Moral influence theory is accepted as part of the healing reality, meaning that Jesus had to reveal truth to expose lies, to win us to trust, because if we have no faith or trust, then we won't allow God to work in our life. So it's necessary. Without it, we're lost. So, so that's part of it. But if he leaves us there, we have trust, but our heavenly physician has no cure. There's no remedy. There's nothing to heal the damage in us. Then we're still lost while we trust. It's like having a doctor we trust but has no remedy to our meningitis. You have to have both trust in the doctor and you have to have a cure to the meningitis. Christus Victor understands Christ Victor over all opposition to his methods here on earth. We can go into a long list of what Christ achieved and all the powers he overcame while he was here. Taking humanity broken and damaged, being tempted in every way just like we are yet without sin, establishing and developing Hebrews 5, 9, a perfect, sinless human character, all these things he achieved over the powers here. But the healing reality not only accepts the truth that wins us trust and the victory of Christ over the, the carnal temptations, he was tempted in every way like we are, but it also accepts there's a, there's a cosmic conflict. It's larger than just us. Angels long to look in these things, and as the Bible says, that all things in heaven as well as earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross. There's a bigger reality going on. Any questions about that? So now you're all ready if somebody throws something at you, right? You've got all seven levels. You understand the atonement models. You understand there's only one of them that's completely fabricated and not in Scripture at all. It's the same one that Paul was dealing with in Romans. And a lot of the New Testament theologians who, who teach penal substitution will try and teach it from, um, from the New Testament in Paul's writings. Most of those are mistranslations of the New Testament, bringing legal language in that is not there. They go with an assumption and a premise. Paul's all about reconciliation and healing. It was not about appeasement. There's nothing in the Scripture about appeasement. Monday's lesson quotes Exodus 6.6. Therefore uh, say to Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring uh, you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you from the, with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. So that, that's good. Perfect, perfect timing. Judgment. I wanted to talk about that. Mighty acts of judgment. When you hear mighty acts of judgment, what pops into your mind? Egyptian. Mighty acts of judgment. He's got it. He's got, he, he finds them wicked. He finds them pagan. He finds them lying about him. He finds them worshiping false gods. And he's outraged. He's angry. He's wrathful. He must judge and punish. Is that how you hear it? That's how it's taught in the penal view. This is from the, uh, this idea of judgment. And this gives you insight into how so much of the scriptures get mistranslated. And this gets this false legal stuff coming in. It comes from Rome. Understand, it comes from Rome. Pagan Rome first and papal Rome second. The Latin language is the language of, of legality. And almost all the church fathers uh, from the time of Rome were Roman lawyers. And so they, they, they brought this penal legal infection into Christianity that we need to free ourselves from. But, but this is from the, the theological word book of the Old Testament regarding this, uh, this word, the Hebrew word translated judgment. It's I don't know how you say it exactly, but it's S-A-P-A-T, sapat or sapat. Uh, it says the primary sense of sapat is to exercise the processes of government. 
the processes of government. Since, however, the ancients did not always divide the functions of government, as most modern governments do between legislative, executive, and judicial, all the departments, the common translation to judge misleads us. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. And it goes on to describe the misleading process. But it leads people who read, at least in English, I don't know about other languages, but in English it leads you down the judicial trail, and God is a heavenly magistrate, an enforcer of rules. And that is not what it means at all. It means to exercise the authority of his government. And his government is the government of reality, the laws upon which creation operates. So he's operating along the lines of reality and the laws of of his design that built into nature for the purpose of eliminating deviations from those designs and restoring his creation back to his designs. That's what he's doing, exercising all of the resources in his government to achieve this outcome. So the acts of judgment are not judicial or legal or penal. They are exercising his sovereignty and authority in running his government to fulfill the covenant promise to Adam. Understand that. The covenant promised to Adam, a Messiah is coming to fix what you've done. That's the entire story. If you want to, the, there is a, there's a Messiah coming to fix the damage that you've done. And God is working through all of his sovereign abilities to bring that about. And so there are times when he makes judgments that are diagnostic. He assesses. And he judges the condition, the problem, the issue, what's broken, what's wrong. Just as your mechanic will make a judgment about what's wrong with a car that won't run. And, and, and he doesn't stop there. He makes a new judgment about what intervention is needed to get it running again. Or a doctor makes a judgment about what's wrong with your health and, and what's intervention to serve you back. We've got a cancer growing. We've got to cut it out. Sodom and Gomorrah in the five cities. A cancer's growing. We've got to cut it out. Because without that excision of this necrotic lesion, the Hebrew people won't make it through for the Messiah. Without those cities, only two tribes of the twelve made it through for Jesus to come. He excised the minimum necessary to keep open the avenue. You see this happening. Now, they also use the, uh, the language in the third paragraph. They want to emphasize the idea of redeeming, redeeming, kinsman redeemer, and so forth and so on. What do you understand redemption to be, this redeeming? What metaphor uh, does it fall under of the metaphors we just talked about in the seven levels of salvation? Where would the redeeming be? When you redeem, what are you doing? Exchanging. You're exchanging or making a deal. So what level is that? Oh, ransom. ransom. That's level two. This is level two. And what, what was necessary to redeem us from sin? What was the price that had to be paid? Truth had to be revealed to destroy lies, and someone had to destroy the infection of fear and selfishness in the human species and restore God's perfect love and law into the human species. And we couldn't do it. Jesus did it. And it was a horrible sacrifice that he made, an infinite sacrifice, a horrible suffering to achieve that outcome. But that's what he did. Yes, he redeemed us at a high cost. It was not legal. It was not penal. Tuesday's lesson, third paragraph. This is the cov- uh, this covenant plays 
a vital role in the plan of salvation. It is the fourth covenant listed in the Bible, preceded by the ones to Adam, Noah, and Abraham. Is this a, a new covenant, a different covenant, or is it simply the latest iteration of the same covenant given to Adam? Something different or just the latest version or update or expression of the original covenant in Eden? That's just the latest expression of the same covenant. Covenant 4.0. <laughs> so it talks in the uh, fourth paragraph about the, uh, that the, uh, their, their delivery from the bondage of Egypt then ultimately led them to teach the plan of salvation uh, through the sacrifice of Messiah um, in types and symbols. He wanted to free them from slavery, and he taught this freedom from the slavery, ultimate slavery. He says, free them from sin, the ultimate slavery, and thus this could happen only through the sacrifice of, of Christ. So Paul then writes in Galatians 5.1, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. What is Paul talking about? Don't be burdened by a yoke of slavery. Philemon, go back to your master. Did he not tell Philemon to go back? Don't be burdened by slavery, Philemon, go back. Slaves, stay with your master. What's he talking about? We are free in Christ. Well, think about slavery. What is the cruelest type of slavery? The most destructive, is it... Not the slavery that enslaves your minds and takes away your identity and destroys your soul. Is that not the cruelest type? Is that not it, guys? More so than bodily enslavement, isn't it? Not that bodily enslavement is good. I'm just simply saying it's not the worst type. And what, what type is Paul talking about here? What did Jesus say? Do not be afraid of the one who can kill the body but cannot kill the... Soul, Matthew 10, 28. It's destruction of individuality, the soul, the mind. The cruelest slavery is a slavery that enslaves minds, that destroys individualities, that crushes the spirit, that sears the conscience, that causes a person to be enslaved to destruction and sin such that they actually prefer the path of destruction. They're a slave to it. They continue to choose it even when Christ gives them off-ramps. Have you known people with some type of an addiction that everybody in their life intervenes and says, here, let's get you in recovery. Let's go to a rehab program. Let's do the 12 steps. Let's get you to a doctor. Let's do this. Let's do that. And they absolutely refuse. Off-ramps everywhere. But they don't want them. Can you force someone into freedom? Many types of ways to enslave the mind. Addictions are one. Fears. There are people that are enslaved to fears. Slaves to debt. But the biggest enslavement I see in society today is the enslavement into a worldly system of imperialism. That you can actually find righteousness through the right laws, the right rules, the right obedience to society. All kinds of false ideas and false standards, and people are buying into them. Uh, just remind people the sanctuary service filled with lots of symbols to teach a larger reality. And we have uh, on our website, I put the link in the notes, an entire series on unpacking the symbolism. We're not going to do that today. So you, uh, you can understand what the reality is. If you have a symbol or a metaphor 
and it's not connected to some reality. It's no longer symbol or metaphor. It's fantasy. God is not a God of fantasy. He's a God of reality, but he will use symbols and metaphors to help lead us back to the ultimate reality. And so if you'd like to, to unpack that, go to our website and go to our uh, resource section there and find our seminars. There's one on the sanctuary symbols and feast days, and we unpack what those symbols mean in reality. So, so um, here's one from Wednesday's lesson. I don't know if we'll get through it or not, but... Uh, first two paragraphs in Wednesday's lesson say, In these verses, the Lord was proposing his covenant with the children of Israel. Though in one sense the Lord called them, that calling was not automatically bestowed upon them without their choice. They had to cooperate. Even their deliverance from Egypt involved their cooperation. Um, here, too, the Lord does not say to them, whether you like it or not, or don't, you will be a peculiar treasure to me. That is not how the Lord works. Whether you like it or not, okay, but understand, within Christianity, that's not what a lot of people think. A lot of people think God's sovereign. He makes what happens what he wants to happen. And they will read out of Romans nine fifteen through 18, which says the following. This is from the NIV. I will have mercy on who I have mercy, and I will have compassion on who I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed on all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on who he wants to have mercy, and he hardens who he wants to harden. Free or not free? God's sovereignty determines. Your individual power of free choice determines. Does God harden people? It's designed for life, what may. What is the theme of the passage that Paul is dealing with? What's Paul dealing with with these words? What's the concept he's addressing, and who is he addressing it to? Is, is he addressing, he's addressing Jewish believers or Jew, Jews in Rome. And what's the, what's, what's the concept he's dealing with? You read the book of Romans. What's the concept? That these people are very gracious, understand uh, God is interested in saving all people. The Jewish people have no special claim to salvation. Is that their, uh, or, or the Jewish people are quite elitist. They believe they were specially called, specially blessed, and they have special rules. You have to do it their way. You have to be circumcised. You have to abide by the rules. Only Jews can be saved. You can convert to Judaism, but if you don't do it and get all the blah, 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 you can't be saved. Okay. He's dealing with these legalists who are exclusive and they're, in many ways, racist against all other people. And he's telling them, God can have mercy on who he's sovereign. He can be merciful to whoever he wants to be merciful to. And who does God want to be merciful to? In fact, who is God merciful to? Everyone. Oh, no, the Jews say, no, no, uh-uh. Because we go back to our covenant at Sinai. And if you, he is only merciful to those who obey the law. If you don't obey the law, he's promised curses on you. So, no, he's not merciful to everybody. He's only to the law bearers, and we're the law bearers. They're level two thinking. Paul's now at level seven. He's understanding God's purpose. He's understanding why God gave the law. He's understanding why God communicated. He's understanding where those people were. These people are trying to have a conversation for which they are, the Jews are very ill-equipped. So he's explaining from their own history then, God has mercy on whoever wants to have mercy, and they did not want to believe that anything more involved was genetic descent and obedience to rules. We have the right genes, we obey the right rules, it's our promise, and we're not sharing it. Paul 
Paul's making the point that God is merciful to all, all people, and he has the right to do so. And every single person uh, has the opportunity to experience and take in the mercy of God. But every person doesn't experience mercy for the same reason every person doesn't experience forgiveness, even though God forgives every person. So what about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart here then? How do we understand it? If you read scripture, and these people he's writing to, these are not the American Bible student. These are not the American Christian who are biblically illiterate, who have no clue about what the Bible actually says. When he writes this shorthand stuff, he's writing it to Jews who have spent their entire life memorizing and learning the Torah. They know the scripture. And so when he says about Pharaoh, immediately their little computers, their heads drop in all these texts that I'll share with you. I'm going to go through them all. But I've got a grouping of three different groups from the Old Testament. And there is at least three or four for each one of these in the Old Testament. And the first is that God's hardening Pharaoh's heart. The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you. Uh, the power to do, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. That's at least three times the Bible says that. But, that's Exodus uh, 4.21. But it also says it this way. Pharaoh's heart became hard. This is Exodus 7.13. Yet Pharaoh, Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord said. And it says that at least four times. And then in three, at least three other places, it says the following. This is uh, Exodus 8.15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord said. Now, the Bible has multiple texts, three, three, and four. Four neutral, three God doing it, three Pharaoh doing it. Tell me, which are the inspired ones? Which ones are not inspired? Or are they all inspired? Yes. God gives us the opportunity and the exposure to the truth and love, and how we respond is our choice. And so Pharaoh, because he decided not to respond in a positive way, God called it hardening his heart. But God gives everybody opportunity, just like he gives everybody opportunity for mercy and forgiveness. So, so let's unpack, I, I agree completely, but let's unpack it a little more. I want you to see how reality works. Okay, how does a heart actually become hard? How does that work? That's right. Uh, it, the heart is hardened by being presented with truth that you comprehend and understand, and you turn and say no to it and reject it, your heart becomes hardened. So God hardened the heart, as you were saying, by bringing the truth to Pharaoh over and over again, and he was convicted on it, acknowledged it, and then later turned around, rejected it, and went the other way. Had God never brought Pharaoh the truth, his heart would not have been as hard. He would have still been out of harmony with God, but he would not have been as hard and as resistant but God did not harden his heart by an act of God's sovereign will. God simply presented the truth. But then Pharaoh exercises freedom to harden his heart. Exactly how reality works. But now the question comes up. Well, if God had foreknowledge, and he knew by presenting the truth to Pharaoh that Pharaoh would harden his heart even more, why would God do that to Pharaoh? Why, would he not, why, why wouldn't he let him be less hard? Knowing he's going to do it. So people argue that's evidence he didn't really know. God was hoping. He was wishing. He was dreaming. He, God was praying. That's a choice we all. Yeah, but, but, but if God foreknew it, 
Why would he bring about events that he foreknew would result in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart? There's a really straightforward and honest answer. God knew the only way to save any sinner from sin is the presentation of truth. The truth will set you free. God would not deny Pharaoh the opportunity to be free from sin. God would not deny Pharaoh the opportunity to be saved. God would not deny Pharaoh the opportunity to exercise his own individuality and his own ability to choose to make his own decision, even though God foreknew it. So rather than being an evidence against God's foreknowledge, it is further evidence of God's foreknowledge, and his foreknowledge doesn't change God's gracious and truthful and loving actions. It's brilliant. It's beautiful when you understand how it works. Yes, God gives us all the freedom, and he gives us all choice, and he gives us all opportunity. What we do with that opportunity determines the outcome and the destiny for each one of us. So um, we won't have time to unpack this very much, but in Thursday's lesson, it talks about why the promises to Israel failed. And I want you to note we made it to Thursday very quickly, but we made it to Thursday. Okay, um, uh, The promises fail according to the lesson because they decided to take them on and do them legally. All the Lord said we will do, we're going to legalistically obey the rules, and then our behavior and our legal ob- obligation or rule-keeping will merit us all the promises. So this was legalism of works, their own works to merit salvation, and this is why it failed. Um, but Christian- and Christianity generally rejects this today, and they've simply replaced it with another fraud. And the other fraud is vicarious legalism, where somebody else came and kept the law perfectly in our behalf, and we get to claim their law-keeping as our legal law-keeping, and it goes to our legal record books in heaven, and God looks into our books, and then we get declared to having been legally kept the law. And, uh, and in fact, I heard on Moody Radio, I think a couple weeks ago, I might have said this last week, uh, a preacher saying um, that when the Lord uh, looks into your record book, he sees the historic life of Jesus recorded there. It's crazy. Yep, you were born in Bethlehem to a virgin. You lived, uh, you were crucified on the cross. You were. Yeah, it's crazy. You don't get his history, you get his character. But that's what happens when you have this false legality. So let me tell you what my definition of a legalist is. A legalist is someone who is preoccupied with their legal standing. And that's what a legalist is. And, and and you can segue that into other things in society, like what's a racist? Someone who's preoccupied with race. Race becomes a litmus test for their decision-making and how they view the world. Everything gets filtered through the lens of race. It doesn't matter what their race is. If that's how they process, they're a racist. Thank you, God, that uh, that God is not a respecter of persons, meaning he is not a racist. He is not a legalist. He is the God of reality. He is the God who built reality to operate in harmony with his own character. And only as we are reconciled to him do we have wellness in life. So let's close with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are the creator God and that you have built the, all the, the universe to operate in harmony with you. And, and we realize how much we need your presence. So we ask for your spirit to take the achievements and victory that Christ has wrought out that we could never wrought out and reproduce it in us. Give us the new heart and right spirit. Write the law on the heart and mind. Circumcise the heart by the spirit. Give us the mind of Christ. So it's no longer our sinful, old, fear-based selves living, but we have the motives and desires of Christ 
to love you and to love others supremely. We pray in your holy name. Amen.